So Isaiah chapter 9, verse 5. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For unto us a child is born. To us a son is is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So like Jeremiah, um, Isaiah was prophesying to people who would, who would um, know the judgment of God through, the, through his punishment by allowing invading armies to come and take them capt- uh, captive. Isaiah prophesied the, the fall of Israel to uh, Assyria, but his uh, main attention, his main focus was on the southern kingdom of Judah. Now, as he speaks about this son that will be given, and he gives these names of the son, Jesus, and he, and he speaks about wonderful counselor and um, a mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. Then he doubles down on the idea of peace when he says, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. The Christmas season is a interesting season for me, just observing the cultural context in which we, we, we experience it. Certainly there are, you cannot really uh, walk through this time of year without recognizing the deep and abiding themes that come right out of Scripture. And so um, even, even in the most secularized of celebrations, but but. But the truth of it is, much of the cultural celebration of Christmas has whitewashed the testimony of Scripture and replaced it with things that seem um, significant but really have no value at all. And so um, the Hallmark movies that I love to make fun of and some of y'all really like to watch um, all have as their theme a happy ending because at Christmas everything has to end happy, right? I mean, the music swells, the snow starts falling, and everything happens right. You'll hear people talking about um, Christmas cheer, and, um, but there also seems to be, in the context of all of that secular celebration, a, a true desire for something significant. And so there'll be this talk and this, this longing for um, a sense of peace. Can't we, can't we just get along? I, we were watching a, a, a movie, uh, Home Alone, recently, and, and the scene where uh, the little boy that's defending his house was talking to his older next-door neighbor, and they were talking about the, 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 the broken fellowship of his next-door neighbor and his son, and, and they said, but you know, this is Christmas time. If there was ever a time to, to make relationships right and, and to restore things, it's this time of year. And of course, when you watch that movie, you're like, yes, that's right. This is the time of year to do that. And, and it always turns out well. We have a God-given, I think, natural and good desire for peace. 
But the reality of it is, since the fall of man, literally since Adam and Eve walked out of the garden, there has never been a moment of peace this side of heaven. Just watch the news this afternoon when you get home. Pull up your Twitter feed, and you'll see story after story, some of them more horrible than you can imagine, anything but peaceful. We long for peace. Our world spends tremendous effort and energy and resources uh, to try to achieve peace, and yet it has not come, it will not come this side of heaven. It doesn't matter how strong your army is or how popular your government is or how wealthy your people are, there will never be peace among men this side of heaven. But the news is worse than that. And I think what Isaiah is getting at is the even worse news. And that is that the Bible declares that our sin has made us enemies of God. That's a strong word, isn't it? I mean, there's some people I don't necessarily like, but I wouldn't consider myself an enemy of them. There's some people that don't necessarily like me, but I hope they wouldn't think of me as their enemy. But the Bible says of us, those who are living in sin, unrepented, not covered by the blood of Jesus, you are an enemy of God and therefore under the righteous, holy wrath of God. The other word that you can use for wrath is hatred. And when God hates something, it's not a negative, it's not a sinful thing. It is a righteous and holy thing. And in sin, we are enemies of God and he has his wrath over us. That's not good. In fact, that is the very definition, the very opposite reality of anything but peace. Man is not at peace with God. The prophet Isaiah spoke to rebellious and sinful people that there was coming a day when a child would be born. A son would be given that would cause the people who walk in darkness to see the light, the great light, and, and the people under the wrath of God to come and know peace through the Prince of Peace. And so this morning, I want us to consider what it means for Jesus who has come who is the Prince of Peace and provides for us redemption before a holy God and peace with God. And, and from this passage, I, I want us to talk about these things. Number one, when the Bible talks about the kingdom of God, it's very clear the former things are passing away, and I think that is a great thing indeed. So I want to talk about what it means for former things to be passing away. And then secondly, Jesus brings, Jesus establishes a glorious kingdom. So there is a glorious kingdom coming and a king who redeems, both of which are, are, are Jesus. But let's begin with um, former things are, will pass away. That's why I wanted to read verse 5. So take your eyes and, and look back with me in your scriptures to verse 5, where uh, as, um, as Isaiah the prophet is writing, he says, Every boot of the trampling warrior in battle, tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for fire. Now, that's not disconnected to what comes after that, for unto us a child is born. That is at, in, 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 in inseparable relationship to that. Because what the prophet is saying is that everything, when Jesus comes and establishes his kingdom, everything is going to change. The former things are passing away and new things are coming. Now, the reality of it is there will be no peace 
in this world with the things of this world. The great theological tragedy of our present moment is that the great promises of God of eternal redemption have been perverted to be small promises of temporary pleasure. What I mean by that is the, the, the theological weakness of our day is we've taken the great promises of Scripture to redeem us, to give us a holy home in the presence of God, to give us glorified body, to dwell in the house of God forever and ever and ever, to, to overcome the suffering of this day with the glory of heaven, and we've weakened that down to just saying, well, you can have your best life now. Different Scripture doesn't call us to have our best life now. It calls us to suffer for the gospel that we might be in glory for eternity with the living God. Don't weaken the promise of Scripture. The promise of Scripture is not that you will have peace on this earth with the things of this earth, but that you will have peace with God in eternity. There will be no peace this side of heaven with the things of this world. As Isaiah proclaims these words of hope from the Lord, these are not words concerning worldly improvements. He's not talking about having a better life or more money or more success or less present suffering or, present or less present difficulty. These promises cannot be accomplished in the context of a world broken by sin. No matter how good the things of this world are, there will never be peace in this world. Doesn't matter how much economic success you have, how much political power you gain, how much physical strength you muster, how much military might you have, there is no peace in what is cursed by sin. And everything this side of heaven is cursed by sin. So the, the idea here there is that the former things will pass away. And in my notes I wrote, praise God. Praise God the former things are passing away. In verse 5, Isaiah tells us that the instruments of this world will have no purpose in the kingdom to come. And so what does he talk about? He says the, the warrior's equipment. So the boots of the, of, of the warrior are going to be burned up in fire. The garments that are stained with blood from, from battle turmoil will be burned up as fuel. In the kingdom of God, there will be no more need for the instruments of this world. And so when Isaiah says they were burned as fuel, this is recognizing these things have no value according to their former use. Their value is no more other than just fuel for fire. You know, as, as, as time marches on, there are always things that have great value today that, that tomorrow will have zero value. I, I love going to things like the Agurama or, or, um, or, or historical museums like that, and, and sometimes they'll have instruments, farm instruments and, and tools on the wall, some of which I recognize. Well, that's a plow, and, and, and that's something else. But, but then there are those, those things that nobody knows what in the world they were used for. You ask folks, what is that? Well, I don't, I don't know. And the reality of it is at some point it probably had some value. At some point it had some use. But because technology changed, because of the needs of farming changed, now that tool has no more value and it's either been thrown away, it's been made into something else, or it hangs on the wall in some museum for people to look at and go, I wonder what you use that for. The image here is that the things of this world that we have invested so much time and money in someday will be nothing better than just stuff that you put in a fire for fuel. And the things he talks about here are things that we put a lot of value in. So he says the boot of the warrior and the, 
and the garment stained by blood. Listen, you don't have to know everything about about world history and about all those things to know this. Every government that has ever existed has put a lot of money and a lot of time and a lot of effort in its army. And you equip your army well. And so the thought of any nation taking its instruments of war and burning them as fuel is a pretty dramatic reality. This is an important reminder to us of the diminishing value of the things of this world and the hope for the kingdom to come. I mentioned to you that the first line I wrote in my notes preparing to preach this message was, former things will pass away. This is a good and glorious thing. Praise God for that. Oh, praise God for that. Everything about this world is stained with the corruption of sin, war, brokenness, hurt, woundedness, heartache. And this, my friends, I think is a word of hope to those who have been broken. This is a word of hope to those who have been abused and hurt by the realities of this world. This is a word of hope to those who long for something better than what this world can offer. The former things are passing away, and the admonition, the the promise here is put your hope in Jesus alone. Verse 5 prepares us to understand the following verse. Look not to the world, look to Jesus. Look not for a better world, long for the coming kingdom of God. Put not your hope in the instruments and power of this world, but put your hope in Jesus alone. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Former things will pass away, and there is coming a glorious kingdom. So immediately in verse 6, Isaiah writes of a child being born, a son given, and the government shall rest upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On Jesus' rests the promises, all the promises of Scripture. So verse 6 points our attention to what is to come. God will give us his son, a child being born. That means he will be fully man. A son will be given, pointing to he will be the son of God, that he will be fully God. And Jesus will establish the kingdom of God, that he will be a wonderful counselor, meaning he will rule in wisdom and in truth. He will be mighty God, um, possessing the power of God to execute his purpose and his plan. He will be the everlasting father. The idea here is that he will be the father of eternity. In other words, he has no beginning and he has no end. He is and he was and he will always be. And he will be the prince of peace, the redeemer of man. God uses the church and his saints to accomplish his will, but on Jesus alone rest the promises of Scripture, and on Jesus alone is the one who fulfills them. Jesus fulfills the promise of a child born both fully God and fully man. Jesus fulfills the promise of the Word becoming flesh and dwelling among us. Jesus alone fulfills the promise to come in the power of God to raise the dead, give sight to the blind, make the lame walk, make the deaf hear, and defeat sin and death once and for all. Jesus alone, Jesus alone rests the promises of God, and this he will bring about a kingdom unlimited by the corruption of sin. The kingdom established by Jesus is unlike any kingdom ever established by man. The kingdom of God is forever, 
It's not only forever, but it's forever increasing. And the kingdom of God is forever in peace. The kingdom of God will never end, and the kingdoms uh, and, and will, and will never stop increasing, and it will only be in righteousness and in peace. The reality of it is, we don't know what that's like. The kingdoms of this world are constantly rising and constantly falling. And you don't always know who's on the rise and who's on the decline. There has never been a lasting peace in this world amongst any government since Adam and Eve in Genesis 3. Historians point to the Roman Empire as one of the longest lasting empires, but you Google that and there's a lot of debate about how you count that length and whether or not they really are the longest, but, but we can agree they lasted a really long time from somewhere around 27 B.C. to 14 A.D. And if you remember your high school history class, you may remember that high school history teaches you that while the Romans had the Roman Empire, were ruling so much of the world with the Roman Empire, that there was a period of peace. Roman peace, the Pax Romana is what they call it. And, and they talk about th this peace because there was a relative lack of violence and war during that period. Now, you know, as a, coming up through school, you take that as its face value and you go, well, that is a good thing. But the, the, the longer you, you think about that, you realize that's a pretty weak understanding of peace. There was a lack of violence and war in the world, but that was because Rome was so militarily strong that they suppressed the people that they ruled. Read the New Testament. And you read the New Testament, you read of a people who are ruled by Rome, and you don't read a people who are at peace with those who are ruling over them. It wasn't peace in the sense that everybody was... Um, kumbaya, and y'all come hang out with me, and I'll come hang out with you. It was peace by the force of a sword and the might of an army. That's not real peace. There will be seasons, and there will be periods in history where there are wars. There will be seasons and periods in history where there will be uh, not as many wars, but there will never be a season or a period this side of heaven where there is true peace. The kingdom of God will not be like the kingdoms of this world. The kingdom of God will not be a kingdom that rises and, or falls. The kingdom of God will be a kingdom that is, is established and lasts forever. The kingdom of God won't be like the, 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 uh, the, the kingdoms of this world in that it lasts forever, it grows forever, and, and, and the Bible tells us that it will be accomplished by God alone. Look at what it says in the very last part of verse 7. The zeal of the Lord will do this. One of the great misunderstandings of the disciples during the ministry of Jesus was that they thought Jesus was going to establish a kingdom according to the power and the might of man. And so they were ready. They were in for that. Because if you're close to Jesus and he's going to establish a, a new kingdom according to the ways of man and you're sort of next to him, then you're going to be high up in that government. But if Jesus was going to accomplish something according to the power of man, he was going to need help, the disciples. I think that's why Peter strikes the, the servant of the high priest when they come to arrest Jesus. You may remember, he takes out his sword and he strikes the servant of the high priest, cuts his ear off. I think Peter's ready for a fight. We're about to have a coup. We're about to have a revolution. We're about to install Jesus as the next king of, 
uh, 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 in, in, in our local province. What is, you remember what Jesus does? Picks up the guy's ear, puts it back on. Now, that must have been an amazing moment. And goes, no, boys, this isn't the kingdom that I'm establishing. I'm not creating a new government of men. I'm creating a government of God. And you can't help me do this. The zeal of the Lord will accomplish this. This season, Christmas, is referred to as Advent. Advent means the arrival of a king. Christmas is the celebration of the king's arrival. The kingdom of God was established with the birth of Jesus. The kingdom of God will be completed with the second coming of Jesus. The kingdom of God will not be corrupted or limited by the corruption of sin. This kingdom will be the perfect establishment of the will and the purpose of God for our blessing and for the glory of God. As we think about that kingdom, I want us now to just give a a thought to the king of this kingdom, Jesus. In verse 6, Isaiah gives us some names Jesus shall be called, and he says, He shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Friends, we've, we've mentioned already today that sin separates man from God. In the list of names given Jesus in verse 6, there's one that seems a bit strange, at least according to the way you think about kings of men, when he talks about being a prince of peace. Here God is describing his son Jesus, who would fulfill the prophecy to establish forever the kingdom of David. And most of the names or references here are references and names that denote power. Kings need power. Wonderful counselor, knowing all things, all truth. Pretty cool thing to put on the resume of a king. Mighty God, unlimited in power. Yes, kingly. Everlasting Father, eternal without end. Every kingdom wants to last forever. Very kingly. So far, these attributes are wonderful and good qualities for a king, a conquering king to have. But frankly, if you think through this, Prince of Peace seems to be a little bit of out of place for a powerful king. But I don't think it's out of place at all. In fact, I think, dear friends, Prince of Peace, out of all of these names, is the greatest among them. All the problems of this world point back to Genesis chapter 3 when Adam and Eve committed sin. When I was teaching this passage this week to our staff, I said, you know, you can explain every problem this side of heaven by simply saying Genesis 3. Why is there death? Genesis 3. Why are there tornadoes and hurricanes and floods? Genesis 3. Why does neighbor hate neighbor? Genesis 3. Why does brother hate brother? Genesis 3. Why is there death and disease and brokenness and heartache? Genesis 3. All of that flows from the corruption that came into the world through and because of sin. Since then, every man, every woman, and every child that has ever lived has continued in sin. Sin is rebellion against God. 
God is holy and perfect and just. No sin or sinner can be in his presence. Therefore, sin has separated us from God, making us, as we've already said, enemies of God and casting us, causing us to be under the holy wrath of God. And in sin, we have no hope. But he's the Prince of Peace. Ephesians chapter 2, Paul writes these words. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope, and without God in the world. Dear friends, sin separates man from God, but the Prince of Peace came to reconcile sinful man to God. You see, Jesus, Jesus draws the wayward and the far off back to God. Paul goes on in the second chapter of Ephesians to say that through Jesus, those who are far off are brought near to God. Listen to what he says. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Jesus. The Prince of Peace makes a way for rebellious and broken sinners to come near the God of righteousness through his blood. The blood of Jesus is the sacrifice for our sin and covers over the stain of our sin. Through the forgiveness found in his blood, Jesus draws wayward and those who are far off back to a right relationship with God. Getting right with God is not about what you can do. Getting right with God is not what you ought to stop doing. And getting right with God is not what you ought to start doing. Getting right with God is about Jesus, the Prince of Peace, making a way for you through his blood to be brought back into a right relationship with God. Jesus alone makes peace between God and man. This is the good news. Jesus doesn't just make a way for peace. He is our peace. Listen to what, how Paul finishes this thought in, second, in Ephesians chapter 2. So in verse 14, he says, For he himself, speaking of Jesus, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Friends, that's some good words right there. In sin, because of sin, you are an enemy of God and under the righteous wrath of God. You know, we oftentimes think about the wrath of God as something future. So you're living in sin, you don't know Jesus, and 
in the future when you die, you will experience the wrath of God? I think a better image to think about, because the Bible speaks about we are currently under the wrath of God, those of us who are in sin, those of you who are in sin. So I always think about it in the sense of, I, I remember driving through Utah, and, and they had these deep ravines where they had, they had dammed up these big rivers, and there were some people who had built homes down in the ravine, looking up at the, at the big dams that were holding back all of those millions and millions of gallons of water. And I just thought, what happens if the dam breaks? What happens if it springs a leak? And I think that's an image of the wrath of God. It is being withheld by the mercy of God, but it is stored up, ready to flow. In sin, you're an enemy of God and under the righteous wrath of God. In sin, you're at war with God, but Jesus, the Prince of Peace, satisfies the wrath of God and makes peace between God and man. That's what God is declaring when he says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not what? Perish, but have everlasting life. Only the Prince of Peace can bring you into the presence of the living God in peace. That's why I think that last name is so precious. He is the wonderful counselor. He is the everlasting father. He is the mighty God. And he is the prince of peace. It is no mistake that when Scripture paints the image of what it will be like to dwell with God, it often uses two types of imagery. The imagery of a table and eating a meal together and the imagery of being in the home. In Psalm 23, it says, you prepare a, a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup runneth over. John 14 tells us that in my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you that I go, uh, I would have told you that, that I go to prepare a place for you. I think these two images are used because they are such intimate experiences. To share a meal with someone is intimate. When you invite somebody to go out to lunch and you sit across the table with, from them, that's not something you do with somebody you can't stand. That's something you do with a friend or somebody you want to know better. You invite them into your home, you prepare a meal for them, and they sit in your home even more intimate to share a meal, to break bread together over a over a table. That's intimate. You do that with friends and family, those that you care about, those that you want to know more about. Now, even more so to that, inviting someone into your house, whether to stay a night like a guest or to move in, that's even more intimate. You don't let strangers come into your house. You don't let just anybody stay in your guest room, and you certainly don't let just anybody move their stuff in and take up residence in your home. You better know them, and you better like them. Amen? And those are the, imagery that, the images that the Bible uses when it describes what it will be like for us to be in the presence of God. He prepares a table for us. He is preparing a banquet for us to come and dwell with Him in His home and sit at His table. When families are fighting, Thanksgiving meals either don't taste good or just don't happen. 
it's hard to sit across the table from an uncle that you can't stand. Enemies are not invited to use your guest room when they're in town and even much less invited to move in and live with you. In sin, you are not welcomed at the table of the Lord or invited to dwell in his house. Just let that sit. In sin, you are not invited to the table of the Lord or to dwell in his house. But Jesus, the Prince of Peace, who shed his blood for the remission of sin, took our place on the cross, has made peace between God and man. The Prince of Peace has forgiven our sin. The Prince of Peace has satisfied the wrath of God. And having been restored to a right relationship, you are welcome to the table. You are welcomed to his house. You are prepared for and provided for in his home. Friends, the peace that the scriptures speak about is not the absence of conflict. The peace that scripture speaks about is the peace that, is no, that comes from knowing the Prince of Peace, who satisfies the wrath of God and restores a right relationship between God and man. And the beckoning for you this morning is come and know, come and know the Prince of Peace. Thank you for listening to All for the Kingdom, a weekly podcast of my preaching ministry. For more sermons, blog posts, and other related content, go to bensmithsenior.org. That's bensmithsr.org. I am the pastor of Central Baptist Church in Waycross, Georgia. I would love for you to join us this coming Sunday at 201 Ava Street here in Waycross. Our morning services begin at 1030 a.m. For more information about Central Baptist, go to cbcwaycross.org. Again, thank you for listening, and until the Lord returns, let us live each moment all for the King and all for the Kingdom.